0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EVN Disturb podcast. My name is Nijdeh Zathurian. I'm the editor of the Creative Tech Section here at EVN Report. My guest today was Gevrk Sohamonyan, the founder and CEO of AIMstack. Gevrk shared with us the product they're building, his thoughts on the ML space, and we also spoke about what it means to build an open source company. Thank you for listening. Gevrk Tan, thank you so much for being here today cheers
1: cheers happy to be here yeah
0: you're one of the first guys i interacted with even before moving to armenia uh, in the sort of Yerevan ecosystem so i think that was like four or five years ago now uh, so it's a real treat to, to be able to talk to you about aim today yeah
1: absolutely i'm thrilled as well by the way i i wasn't even in armenia myself at the time you were in ireland right yeah 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 so it's been a long time it's ago. been a long time
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Georg, let's start with a little bit of your background how'd you get into computer science
1: yeah, um, so I'm born and raised in Armenia. Um, very traditional, like Armenian family. Um, so I'd say a formative thing for me was basically my parents pushing me to go to Fizmat, which is a school uh, local in Yerevan. So it's like a Soviet style. They jump a lot of physics and math into you unapologetically for a few years. Pretty much after that, it's... Uh, it's either physics or computer science or math or something between those lines. So I, I studied in the applied math faculty of the Yerevan State uh, in in Yerevan, and then after that I kind of tried a few universities. So it's been a mix and match. I did American University of Armenia, then went off to start up in Ireland before that i was working in armenia yeah. so it's been a co- kind of convoluted one yeah but um i'd say those two universities have been pretty formative for me
0: i think if you look back on all our guests most of them who are entrepreneurs investors and stuff one of the common threads amongst them is that they're physmath math grads uh you're probably like the 15th one we've had on the show so far oh wow what do you think is so good about the school that filters out a uh, really high like high quality grads high quality scientists and mathematicians and engineers
1: um I think, first of all, focus, right, that uh, the school is aggressively focused on physics and math, which is, you know, ingrained in the name of mm-hmm. the school as well. For me, it was uh, this exposure to a different way of thinking, uh, competition, intellectual competition in a way that you, you know, when you express yourself uh, the teacher, the way they engage you. So, uh, so obviously, someone like me, who have had like several teachers who have been very influential uh, especially the formative years. I Pretty much all of my friends have, have a teacher or two from FISMAT mm-hmm. um, who have been very informative. Um, and also what's interesting about FISMAT, and I don't think everybody talks about <laughs> this, but they have took one of the key schools in the country and uh, built it in uh, one of the nastiest neighborhoods in the country. So that's another
0: thing. Why is that important? Maybe.
1: Well, you... Uh, you get exposed to both uh, worlds, oh, you okay.
0: know, yeah. it's like a bubble within a, <laughs> you know, uh, a
1: <laughs> there is a, you know, it takes, <laughs> it takes certain level of gut and stamina to get from the, from the gates of the school to the point when you take a, you know, bus, bus back you know, home, yeah. that, that in between, you know, <laughs> definitely has some adventures in mm-hmm.
0: it. Okay. So, uh, you were working at a startup in Ireland as an engineer, and then at some point you decide to start your company aim. Tell us that story.
1: Uh, So I was studying at the American University. I was working at one of the local companies here as a software engineer. So I started like working very early on while, which is not a good thing. I wouldn't recommend the kids doing that. But um, it's better to focus on studies, right? Um, But, you know, you end up doing, uh, I had my reasons because I wanted to, you know, help my parents, um, etc. Yeah, so I ended up landing this kind of contract gig where I was uh, coding from a cafeteria from the American University of Armenia for like this um, Irish company with working a few with a few guys here. Uh, Then I ended up kind of at some point I was like working with them alone, basically coding in between the the exams. And then it was basically March of 2014. I see, oh, this uh, very famous Cisco exec has left Cisco and starting a new company, it's, and I was like looking, read, reading the names, and I was like, "Oh, these are the guys I work with." Oh, mm-hmm. interesting. So I had no idea. So barrio Sullivan was uh, one of the senior VPs of Cisco at the time. It's a large you know, telecommunications company. Um, so he had left uh, Cisco to start this company called Alto Cloud, which is was partly in Ireland, uh, partly in Palo Alto. Um, so it was, it was a no-brainer. I, I literally, I literally left uh, mm-hmm. to so. I was already fully consumed by Paul, by Paul Graham articles. I was, I was deep into it. I was very deep into it. So it was a no-brainer.
0: So you knew you wanted to build a company even. Oh, like big time, that. big yeah. time. Uh,
1: you know, when you read that startup equals growth article like five times, yeah. ten times, yeah. You know, start thinking <laughs> a lot about it. <laughs> right. right.
0: <laughs> was Aim your first uh, crack at starting a company? Yeah. This is your first one, and it's so far, so, so good. First one, yeah.
1: Oh, I mean, t- time will show. Right. So I've been thinking about this for like since 2017, but um, Gore and I we started in like 2019.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about what it is that Aim does. So uh,
1: Aim is an open source library that is really good at collecting large quantities of machine learning metadata about you know machine learning training and other parts of the machine learning you know process a lot of this multidimensional metadata and it allows the researchers to compare them uh, in a very few clicks, uh, in a very scalable fashion. And that's what we are known for, that's what uh, a lot of people are using our product for.
0: For our listeners who aren't familiar with machine learning, uh, explain what machine learning metadata looks like. What is it that you guys are tracking? Yeah,
1: right. So if you think about the regular software, the regular software, the way it gets changed, humans change it, right? So when you when you read the code, it's the code is the source of truth for regular software. You can read, you can think about it, you can comprehend about it, and you can change it. And when you change, that's that's how basically software you know gets developed, and then it goes to production, and then it changes. So basically, regular software, also known as software 1.0, uh, get changed in a human pace at the code level. Yeah, and the source of truth for that type of uh, you know software is the code where that's what gets deployed that's what the end result is that's what you hire people to do etc but when it comes to the machine learning or ai code is just the beginning of the whole game uh, you write the code you need to have the data and your goal to produce a kind of a model so that you can end up you know deploying it into some type of an environment where you can bring value right so the, the way you end up building the model you uh, the model kind of, there is it's, it's a computational process where a code gets combined with data, with the compute, with some pipeline. And then uh, the model changes at a very fa- like exponentially faster speed than software 1.0, it does change. And so the model, you cannot read the model. You, there is no, no way you can uh, look at the model and tell it what it's going to right. do, how it's going to behave. It's a stochastic uh, process uh, most of the time. Or all of the time, and then basically you cannot you cannot interact with it directly. So I need to interact with it. You know, look around like inter- like, yeah. Uh, and so that's where metadata comes in. Basically, everything you talk about the model while it's training before, like all this information that including the code. This is maybe an unpopular opinion. For as far as I'm concerned, code is also machine learning metadata. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? It's part of the puzzle that makes the model happen. Hmm. Maybe data would be a stretch to call a metadata. But uh, code, for instance, includes the hyperparameter, right? So you kind of say, oh, these are hyperparameters, I want to tweak uh, one value inside the hyperparameter and then rerun again. Uh, And it's the same with code. If you tweak even a small, I don't know, uh, dropout whatever value or maybe a small tweak in the architecture or maybe size of the feature vector, that's still you want to try to get a model.
0: And aim tracks all of that. Oh yeah, we do track everything that. So moves. you guys kind of do like version control for machine learning. Oh uh,
1: oh yeah, we, whatever we track, it definitely gets version controlled. Right. Mm. But um, it's not just version control. We we track uh, large quantities of multidimensional metadata. And so by saying multidimensional, I mean imagine imagine one machine learning training can have several hundred hyperparameters. Uh, several hundred metrics. Each metric can have up to a few million steps. And by saying step, I mean uh, metric is a sequence of numbers. Each number is a step, right? Mm-hmm. And then this is just the metrics. What if you try decide to track some like intermediate images? Mm-hmm. But for instance, uh, you run I don't know uh, 64 epochs, and then you you take like a batch of 64 images and then run uh, five times each epoch. Then you know multiply the numbers. That's That would be a very lightweight way of tracking images during training. So there's a lot of things that move during the machine learning training. And um, our library tracks a good number of that stuff.
0: Yeah. Earlier you were speaking about software 1.0 and 2.0. Machine learning fundamentally is very experimental. It's more scientific, you could say. Although it's still, I think, an engineering discipline. So there's a lot of things that are tracked at pre-production stage, the development cycle, and even when you push it into a post-production or into a production environment. So there's this whole tooling that is being built in order to help bring machine learning models out of the labs and the universities into the real world in production. And this is what we call MLOps, right? So there's DevOps that emerged 20, 25 years ago with tooling like AWS and Docker and Kubernetes and stuff. And now there's a sub-industry emerging around MLOps. Tell us how you sort of see that space today, how you see the tooling being developed and maturing.
1: Oh man. Well, there's several uh, versions, several versions <laughs> of <Yeah>. this <laughs> conversation we can have. So it's obviously one of the one of the fastest growing and hottest areas of of uh, this whole machine learning um, frenzy, which is a real one. Uh, the real companies are being built with real revenues all across the pipeline. So tooling is essential, right? So first of all, it's important to state that for the type of you know work that you do with machine learning. You need to have tools to be somewhat efficient, therefore, the need for you know this these many companies are emerging at different parts of this infrastructure that are trying to solve you know pains yeah um and so uh it's quite competitive there is lots of players out there basically targeting- m- many different actors in the market the the researchers the MLOps people the labelers mm-hmm. so there's quite a bit of people involved right because first of all you need to have the data then you need to have the compute <laughs> so there's layers then you need to somehow organize your work for instance say yeah. oh first run this the labeling job and then run this training and then ask the xyz so that's kind of horizontal and then uh, then you build like layers and layers of other stuff such as oh track this metadata then oh, do eval or do something else so and then you could See companies are evolving to fill in those uh, gaps. Yeah, to try to answer those because, uh, but in my view, a lot of it is still quite fragmented. These tools are quite siloed. They're not. They are somewhat integrated, but not in an extent that you know there is no uh, clear mainstream ones. Uh, maybe besides the Hugging Face mm-hmm. Transformers, which is. Uh, do I need to explain what Hugging Face Transformers is? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's an open source library that basically co- provides a framework uh, of a base model, which is called a transformer, which is a language model. Uh, you Not can us use it to it. translate. You can use it to uh, say name entity recognition, name entity recognition when you have a sentence and you want the machine to say, oh, there was Donald Trump in the sentence, that's named entity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's, uh, this is one of hundreds of these applications that these transformers are really good at and this is kind of the can we say it's a the one of the early foundation models before gpt that's kind of fair to say right 2017 right uh yeah yeah they build these models and then so that people can come in and fine-tune it's called fine-tuning where you say oh you build this uh, base model where I can have my I for instance I have my own data say you are a, a call center right when right. You, when you are a, say say you are a call center company where you have lots of customer chat you want to say oh let's train a bot for for two to so so you know that talks with our users mm-hmm. or like customers and then you can say oh take this transformer and uh, use this ex- existing you know data that already we, we already have and um, train a new model from it and then use it for our, you know. That's what Hugging Face is. So that's, they're like pretty mainstream because um, they were able to convince the people to come around and build around those models. And Uh, give people access to those
0: foundational models early on.
1: Yeah, it's also open source. So, you know, it's easy to, uh, so it's easy to um, distribute and use and contribute.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know. Do you anticipate um, kind of a consolidation around, MLOps tooling as the ecosystem continues to to mature? Because right now there's a ton of players really competing for, for a few narrow spaces, right? Like there's people competing for the annotation market, there's people competing for experiment tracking, people competing for uh, model performance monitoring, etc. How do you see it evolving over the next, let's say, 10 years? Because uh, in the traditional DevOps space, Really, a couple of big players monopolize the whole thing. right? Mm-hmm. If you look at the story
1: of the traditional DevOps or just overall the story of these types of software developer tools or a uh, story of these types of fragmented markets, usually what happens is somebody orthogonal comes in. Can we say orthogonal? So orthogonal means you're playing on this, you know, uh, playing field and then another playing field gets created. Right. <laughs> That's you're like not aware of or you didn't anticipate basically a kind of a completely new way of doing things that comes in and makes the other guys obsolete. Mm -hmm. So I see a consolidation happening in that fashion as opposed to somebody becoming so big that um, needs to be new ideas.
0: You mentioned earlier uh, foundation models. So foundation models are these large uh, machine learning models that are built by the big players like Google, OpenAI, and stuff. And then through Hugging Face, or sometimes by the companies themselves, they release it through an API, or maybe they open source it, and, um, and people have access to using it. How does the transition towards foundation models, these large models that the average team or company isn't gonna train themselves from scratch, uh, how does that impact the MLOps space? How does the tooling begin to differ in the way it's applied and used?
1: So obviously one of the one of the challenges for foundation models is the deployment where you need to right. make it like low latency, you know, and all that stuff. So the way I see the companies are still going to somewhat iterate over those models, uh, even if it's uh, available via an API. So there's going to be basically a kind of clusters of different companies that do different things with them, right? For instance, if you're, uh, I don't know, they're, they're now, nowadays they're like real companies uh, using, say, uh, open AI you know, APIs or parents, a stable yeah. diffusion model, uh, you know, model, etc, or hugging face, you know, models that uh, are generating real revenue, and they are kind of building on top of those models, but they are not doing the pre-training part, which is very resource intensive, but they may be using an API to fine tune. or So there's like several different ways of thinking about this. Um, as far as we are concerned, uh, the models never stop being stochastic and the uh, metadata around the models always need to be collected because you need to still uh, connect the dots between what did you try and how did it behave etc cetera, etc cetera. but definitely some tools are some companies are going to you know transform so there is a, a lot of it kind of depends on the layer the, these companies operate on because when we speak about the mlops space we kind of need to talk about uh, where do they operate, for instance, uh, would the pipeline companies change what they do? Maybe not, right? Because they don't really deal with the compute themselves. They just say, oh, let, let me organizing this work and give you a dashboard to organize it. And then the other question is, oh, great. Like, oh, foundation models are great. But in reality, there is a bunch of other predictive models of different types that are still out there being deployed, bringing value to companies and uh, companies are building around them. Etc. For instance, maybe you don't, you shouldn't, you know, try to kill a, you know, fly with a with the big gun, right? Right. So, therefore, the foundation models are going to definitely enable several categories, revolutionize some of the way pe- some of the companies think about themselves, what they do, and how they do. If you're any any kind of company who does with the image editing, <laughs> you should be deeply thinking about it. If yeah. you're any kind of company who does something with text, uh, chatbot, or search even, right? So Mm -hmm. (laughs) you can open that conversation with a search. So basically, these foundation models at this stage are really good at a few things, right? They help you write code, Mm -hmm. right? The copilot. They help you do a lot of stuff with text and they help you do a lot of stuff with images. But not every problem is out there in the scope of those types of generative style, you know, problems. There's still a lot of other uh, machine learning models are bringing value to different companies and while there is a chance that these models can come in and like completely take over all these other, you know, areas, it will take a little bit of time. And then, yeah. And then depending on where you are on the layer of infrastructure, you know, that may, may or may not affect you. For instance, if you are a compute level uh, tool, say, I don't know if the so Slarm is a PyTorch, it, it Slarm is a tool that allows the engineers to organize a multi GPU training of machine learning mm-hmm. models. So, or for instance, Ray, it's a company on top of Ray called AnyScale. Um, they, OpenAI uses Ray to train those models. Right. So, right. therefore, there is also the other group of companies who tr- do train those models. And uh, a lot of the competition with them is about the scale and like, uh, not the scale, about the compute and understand to understand, oh, the, how, how big of a compute can you have and how much of right. stuff you right. can train they do do need tooling right mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. as far as i'm concerned uh that doesn't uh, aggressively affect the uh, mlops space space in a in a way that it may be you know thought about but definitely there is some you know some tweaks different yeah. companies are going to need to do to be able to adjust
0: yeah foundational models might just create a lot more opportunities for people who for companies that traditionally wouldn't have Implemented AI in their products at all to start integrating them, rather than sort of just wipe out all the companies that were training models from scratch uh, or just training models. Period. I think. Yeah.
1: yeah. So there are companies who train all sorts of models, or try to build all sorts of infrastructure and trying to get lots of value, all sorts of value from right. them. And examples like in industrial cases, examples are in um like a lot of tabular data is out there still being auto auto ML'd into different prediction models right yeah so it's not really straightforward one way to look at it is to look at the way people are going to apply this uh foundation models are definitely going to create some even maybe industries or even uh, enable like uh, categories etc but saying it will disrupt everything that comes around maybe in a 10 year time yes but in the short term there's still like lots of activity all over uh, across yeah. the board. Because, for instance, uh, not too difficult to find companies who uh, deploy very simple models like logistic regression b- because they care about the explainability, right? Right, right. And they have a kind of or decision trees. Mm-hmm. They care about the explainability. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't think it's very difficult to find no, people think, to extract uh, value from those models too.
0: I have no idea what the percentage is, but... Traditional ML models are definitely still something that get deployed in in products. Um, yeah. So let's get back to AIM. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what type of organizations are are using your your product.
1: Yeah. Uh, so recently, it's been quite a bit of growth of uh, different uh, companies. We we have like issues being opened by Amazon ML, Facebook Air Research. Uh, so that's kind of the the larger end of the companies right. and obviously smaller startups as well, yeah. and everything in between. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so AIM is, uh, has recently become a top 1% of all Python libraries ever. Wow. So it's like... Uh, on GitHub? On, on
0: PyPy. Uh, on PyPy, right, sorry. Yeah. yeah. That's so incredible. It's heavily yeah, downloaded. Wow.
1: It's heavily yeah. downloaded. We see a lot of people are using AIM to run humongous amount of training runs. That's what it's, it's especially good at. And, you know, we work with a few groups who have been, like, comparing... Uh, tools together and and according to those comparisons we may be world's best experiment tracking open source experiment tracking
0: maybe one percent of all python libraries downloaded that's really really crazy yeah again i'm just thinking back to when i I first heard about this from you in like four or five years ago so it's that's really really cool i'm happy for you so you guys made a conscious decision to build the tooling open source one, why did you guys decide to do that? and secondly, do you credit that for a lot of these big organizations like Facebook AI and Mila and stuff using it like w- does that give you a level of visibility and exposure that helps large players adopt your uh, product?
1: Honestly, the decision to go open source was a little bit more pragmatic uh, slash conclusive. So, so basically the very my co-founder Gore and I were like thinking about the product. Of, so my background is I have been I have been building machine learning infrastructure since like 2017 and I had a chance to be exposed to a lot of the problems even today that are kind of some categories are, are kind of being spun up. Uh, so it was pretty much o- obvious at the time that all of this need to exist for somebody like me to not have that much pain. Yeah, because I did have a lot of pain, like at the time of trying to figure out, for instance, how do I make uh, several hundred models work at the same time? Yeah. And then how how do I keep track of all of these, you know, moving pieces, right? And obviously, we had an idea of what had to be built. So we have decided, oh, let's go and talk with a lot of researchers and, like, make a product for the researchers. And uh, we would say, oh, let's make it enterprise, closed source, etc. As uh, us being, uh, you know, a faithful Uh, believers of what Paul Graham has to preach about talk to your users and customers and build, talk to your users and customers and build. Oh, let's go. So we started with that and some of the problems we were having was uh, we would get, oh, like having a pilot with a a company XYZ uh, and then this company XYZ so, oh, if you build this specific feature, that would be great. Let's, you know, we would need that. That would oh, add us a lot of value. Okay, great. We go back. We take two weeks. We build it out. We go back. Say, hey, you know, we already built it. Great. Huh? We're deploying. We're doing. We're, yeah. we're, we're doing it right. Then say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm already out of that problem right now, and I have this problem right now. There you go. And then we go back and build. So we found ourselves in this endless <laughs> cycle of catching up with these yeah. moving requirements. Right. And so that's what led us to believe, oh, maybe we need to we should think about the foundation we build a f- in a you know certain roadmap and people, if they want extra stuff, they can build for themselves. But also it would be so much easier to try out our work. Right. Right. right? Because it's low barriers. And then also we would get in those conversations a lot easier and faster. Yeah and also we are uh, obviously the 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 dna of the machine learning is in the open source if yeah. you think about it the dna of the infrastructure is in the open source Python, all of the so tools so we so use yeah. are open source yeah and so it was uh, basically this compound decision that uh, we made there was also another component to it of okay great suppose you go to open source how where do you start from right, right. actually let me go back so two other things that had happened that made us like deeply you know, go, go towards open source. Uh, so the conversation with Ian, so Ian is um, so there's this company called Mattermost that is building an open source Slack. You know, have you heard of Slack? No. Well, uh, Slack, yes. Yeah. Not so the open source, Slack. They're a very successful company. So it was like, why would you build an open source Slack, right? The question, because right. it's Slack like already exists. Apparently, they have quite a number of customers, et cetera. A few conversations with him like really opened our mind. And so at the, all the time we were thing. at the Berkeley Skydeck, we got introduced by a few you know, introductions. And so we were lucky to have that chat with Ian. And so that has been uh, basically a turning point for us. I was like, oh, it's possible to build a great business on top of open source. Right. I was like, all right, let's go.
0: For some people that might not be so intuitive, can you talk a little bit about how, how an open source product turns into a business? Like how do you guys monetize it? How does that work?
1: So the recipe, uh, uh, I'd say for open source is very much similar to what freemium is, right? You build a free product and hope a lot of people will use it. And then you then hope either an extended version of that product or maybe even uh, something parallel to that product that's like somehow connected to each other with basically basically two ways, right? You either sell an extended version, which is the freemium, or you use an open source project to, uh, as a channel to lead to another product that's paid product, right. Right? So mm. those two. And then basically the name of the game is, oh, can you make your uh, open source project so useful and so famous and so kind of mainstream? That many people will use it, and then you know, then that would allow you to build a business. But then obviously, there are the risks where, oh, uh, what if your commercial product is a competitor of your, your non- open source? Pre- that's the yeah. biggest risk. Uh, so first risk is uh, uh, making it you know, famous. Second risk is too famous.
0: Is it more of a risk that the open source version becomes a competitor of? commercial version or is it the commercial version that
1: you need to define those lines and that's a very tricky one and the most famous example is obviously the docker right right. because they made the most heavily used one of the most heavily used infrastructure tools out there and uh, i'm not sure if they were able to fulfill the 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 commercial side of it right but it's like (laughs) it's everywhere it's a balancing act yeah Yeah. yeah.
0: so So you guys have a commercial version of AIM as well?
1: We are in the process of building one.
0: Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, And uh, any advice for people looking to to build on open source?
1: One of the key advice to basically anyone building anything, but especially open source, is to clearly decide between yourselves what's your focus. Because once you are out there in the wild, you get pulled in all sorts of directions. You have to have a clear idea what you're trying to do and stick to it because there's so it's so easy to build inches inches deep miles wide yeah but what you want to do is to build miles deep inches wide that would be my main advice well said Gerek,
0: last question uh what do you hope to see uh, for the future of aim in five to ten years
1: so in the next five to ten years we want to uh help as many researchers as possible to build the models you know faster and bigger and really, you know, help um, the, this wider AI community to to transform basically the world with these new capabilities that AI brings us to basically unlock a new type of, you know, productivity. Our mission is to basically build this, you know, uh, democratized tooling that would allow many, many people to do it as, you know, fastest. Iterators, fast. Yeah, faster. yeah. Basically what we really care about with this is to is to enable um AI researchers to have a very high velocity of iteration with building this mo- basically taking those models to production. That's what drives us. Right. How fast can you iterate on this? And you know and I feel like a lot of the dev tools should, you know, maybe think that way, but yeah, that's our goal in the next five to 10 years. Unlock a lot of these productivities
0: that, you know, AI is going to
1: bring with it right. faster and better.
0: I wish you a lot of luck with that, work uh, It's awesome to see AIM's success over the last few years and looking forward to seeing more in the future. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Appreciate it. It was awesome to chat. Thanks, gavok